Good afternoon, everybody. I'm an Al-Anon member. My name is Joyce. I am truly an Al-Anon member by the grace of God. Everything I am, everything I ever will be, I owe to God as I understand him, and to the Al-Anon family groups and, and the best sponsorship. I'm really grateful to be with you today. I'd, I'd like to congratulate the AA committee for this roundup. And I also want to thank you for allowing Al-Anon to be a part of this convention. It's not a right for us to be here, it's a privilege. And I want to thank you because it's in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and convention weekends like this where uh, potential Al-Anon members hang out and I was one of those. You know, I hid in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and conventions uh, for a year and a half until, um, well, I finally got there after a year and a half to my first convention and it's there I heard a woman that I would have died to be like. And I came into Al-Anon. So I am so grateful. I, maybe there's somebody like me that's hiding in these rooms today. So I want to thank you. I'm so um, thankful to be invited where, um, to come to this convention. What a beautiful setting. We've had a great weekend. I want to thank Jerry for being such a gracious hostess this weekend. Um, I want to thank Annalise for being at the airport to give me that wonderful Calgary welcome. I want to do this all weekend. If any of you that know this, if it happens at the airport, and I loved it. And my husband's going to be so happy because he's a country and western fan. He's been trying to get me in a cowboy hat for years and he's now made it. <laughs> You're going to make his day when I walk in wearing a white Stetson tomorrow. So he will thank you. I also would like to thank uh, Sid. We had a, a, a great afternoon of, of shopping uh, the afternoon when I got here. She's just a lovely woman. I really enjoyed her company. And I'd also like to thank Alan, too. Uh, for the, He drove me up here, so we had, quite a, we had quite a little meeting on the way up. So it's so nice. I always feel when I'm going on these weekends um, and people ask me where I'm going, I tell them I'm going to an intimate family reunion. <laughs> uh, and that's what it's been like this weekend. I've been really excited because there's some, some people here that I, that I really love and uh, some of my closest friends. And also um, to see Bob and Marion again. This has made my whole weekend just connecting with them again. So I want to thank you. It's, um, it's just, as I say, such a privilege to be here. Um, as Alan said, um, I've been a, I'm a member of the Hope Al-Anon family group in Hope, British Columbia. I have been a member of that group since the 13th of September, 1973, and for that I will be ever grateful. Um, so I'm just really thankful for that. I like to tell a couple of um, uh, little stories before I start my talk because they tell you an awful lot about my life. And the one I want to start with is the story about the, uh, the great big room like we're in today. And at the left-hand end of the room was the door to Happy Ever After. And at the right-hand end, um, there was a fellow out there with a baseball bat. And they put the wife of the alcoholic and the so-called normal person in the room together. Now, the normal person went out the door, got hit with the baseball bat, came in and thought, and went out the door to Happy Ever After. Now, the wife of the alcoholic came in and... Um, uh, she went out, got hit with a baseball bat. She sat down and thought, <coughs> went out the door and got hit with a baseball bat. <laughs> Came in and thought, went out the door and got hit with a baseball bat. 
And to make a long story short, she went out so many times that eventually when she went out, the guy was gone and she went looking for him. I feel really at home now. <laughs> the other little story that I particularly love, and this is for, maybe there's the odd one like me that tries to take God hostage, was a story about the little boy. His name was Joey, and, and he was six years old, and he was an only child, and he really, really wanted a baby sister. So he had talked to his parents about it, and there certainly was no action coming forth, so his mother had told him that he could talk to God. You know, that there's nothing that he couldn't ask God for. So he decided he'd write this, he'd print this little note to God. So he sat down at the dining room table and he got a pad and a pencil and, and, he, and he printed, Dear God, I've been a good boy most of the time. And then he thought, ooh, that, that's not really true. So he tore it up and he started to write again. This time he wrote, Dear God, I've been a good boy most of the time. And he thought, well, that's, that's, not, that's not good enough. So anyway, he got up off the table, went into the bathroom, got this beautiful pink towel that his mother had in there, and he got a statue of the Madonna. And he wrapped this towel around it and put this statue in the middle of the table, and a nice little ribbon around it, and he sat down and he started to write again, Dear God, if you ever want to see your mother again... <laughs> I want you to know this afternoon how wonderful it is to hear the laughter. Because I want to tell you, um, there wasn't much laughter in my life. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I've always loved an alcoholic. I believe today that my, I believe my father had a problem with alcoholism before I was born. So I have no idea what the word normal is about. I just know from the time that I was a very young age that I felt that our family was very different. And I, I, I had no idea. We had a lot of secrets. You know what? We always had this. Uh, my father had this. Uh, always had. We had double standards in our house. Uh, my father could do as he pleased, and the rest of us were supposed to toe the mark. And we weren't supposed to tell it. It was an unheard said thing that you just didn't tell um, anything that was going on in our house. And I really felt lonely and isolated. I, I couldn't understand until I came to the program. The thing we were trying to hide was my father. You know, and the thing, and, and you know, it, we, I lived in this little town in, the, uh, in, in Saskatchewan, just outside of Saskatoon, for those prairieites that are here. And I was raised in this little town of 375 people, and boy, is it ever hard to keep secrets. You know, because when you go to a social function, everybody knows what's going on. So when I was going to school the next day after a social function, a dance or whatever, I would go to school and I would have to listen to my friends talking about the latest horror story that my father had. Do, you know, um, contributed to at the local dances. Now, my father was a businessman in the community, and um, and he was not a daily drinker. He was a bender drinker, uh, but you never knew when it was going to break out. And I got to the point where I hated to take people home. I was I was so afraid. You know, I know what it's like to be a white knuckled passenger in a in a vehicle. We had a little summer cottage about 40 miles from this little town we lived in. And I can remember being so afraid. We, if we, if we didn't get past the, the the street where the liquor board store was on on Friday night when we were on the way to this summer cottage, I knew we were going to have hell. 
because my father would pick up a 26 and he would drink it until he, he passed out. And I hated that. I hated from the time I was a child what alcohol did to people because when my father took a drink, he became somebody else. He became somebody that I was afraid of. Uh, and, and he changed so drastically. So I didn't want to bring anybody near our home. I, was, I, I didn't take people very often to the summer cottage, and when I did, I was stressed all the time. But I found other ways, you know. I believe that um, when, you, when you, your needs aren't met, being met in one way, you'll compensate in another. And I found out that I was really good in school. And I didn't let anybody beat me, I'll tell you. I was really great. I was um, good in sports. I belonged to everything. But I always felt like I was alone. When I hear alcoholics talk about feeling alone in a crowd, I know how you feel because that's how I felt. I always felt separate from and I couldn't, could never let anybody get close to me because they might find out what was going out in my, uh, on in my life. And I always felt if you found out my secrets, you'd never have anything to do with me. Now, by the time I was 15 years old, I was thinking of committing suicide, and I had no idea why. By the time I graduated from high school, I had bricks of resentments built up on my shoulders towards my father and my mother. I was angry with my mother because she accepted unacceptable behavior. And I always thought, well, if I can just get out of this house, I'm not coming back. And when I get out of here, I'm going to be fine. It wasn't until I got to Al-Anon that somebody told me that when you move, you take yourself with you. And I just assumed that I could leave this home and go out into the workforce and, uh, and that I would be fine. But I didn't handle life well. I didn't handle a job I worked in for a couple of years very, uh, very well. I didn't like it. It's not what I wanted to be doing. Um, and I just had a very, I had a very difficult time um, handling people who intimidated me. And you know, one of the things that happened is my, I, I had known my husband's sister for a number of years, and, and I knew her, his father, Holic, and uh, I had, I had visited his family on different occasions. When his sister got married. Um, I met him for the first time and I saw him in a white tuxedo the first time I saw him and I was hooked. I thought, I will have that. <laughs> and the one thing that I do know that I, that I have in my control issues is if I decide I'm going to have something, watch out. And I started to pursue this guy and within 18 months we were married. Now I have to tell you when we were dating that you know, there was, I, I mean, I, was, I don't have to say there was symptoms of alcoholism in, in my husband. I have to tell you outright that I was told he was an alcoholic. His younger sister told me that. And I, you know, my reaction was, snippy little so-and-so, who does she think she is? I don't like her. She doesn't like me, and I'll show her. <laughs> and, I, you know, my, the other thought I had was, and, but, I mean, when he marries me, why would he need to drink? <laughs> why would he need to drink? I mean, he came from this very unhappy home, and I was going to give him everything he ever wanted. We'd have, you know, I, was pl I, I mean, I really planned the whole future. We were going to live in this vine-covered cottage with a picket fence, 2.4 children, which was the national average at the time. And now I was going to have a life. And I'm telling you, did I ever. My husband said, said he, has, uh, he's, he always say, says this to me, he said, I told you I was going to take you a long way. He said, I just didn't tell you it was to hell and back. <laughs> and nobody intended for this to happen. Nobody wishes the disease of alcoholism on another person. And my disease progressed. I took the disease that I already had from my home 
And, and every time my husband drank, it's almost like he stepped into my father's shoes and the reaction got very violent in a very big hurry. I'm not going through all the drinking stories because I love to talk about recovery, how, to get, how I'm getting well and how I'm growing in Al-Anon. But I want to tell you that within a very few years, we had, uh, we've had children on, we had three little children on the scene. I want you to know that sex does not cure alcoholism. I want you to know that love does not cure alcoholism. And we found ourselves in a marriage. Within four years, we had three small children. And I'm telling you, we were in a great deal of trouble. Now, I want to tell you what a typical weekend was towards the end of my husband's drinking. My husband, like my father, was a bender drinker. And he would come home on a Friday night. And my big thing is to get food into him. If I can just get the food into him, then he can't drink. You know, it was always control. I spent my whole week waiting for this guy to come home so I could keep him at home. If he went out of the house for a haircut or a newspaper, that was devastating because I just never knew when he was going to turn up. It could be a day or two or whatever. So I would try to pump the food into him on Friday night. You know, when I would do all the nice things, I'd have this wonderful meal prepared for them. And my husband used to say, you know, when he came in the door, he had this desire to drink. Drinking Friday night was drinking night. And he said, how do I do this? How do I do this when there you are, you're happy, the kids are happy, you've made this wonderful meal. And what he tells me is he had to get me to react, and did I ever play? He knew exactly how to push my button so he didn't have to eat. And if he wasn't gone Friday night, he was gone Saturday morning. And, you know, I would... I would sit there and think, he's gone. He's gone at 10 o'clock in the morning and by 2 o'clock in the evening. Like I'm crazy. And I'm thinking, what's this guy doing? You know, is he going to drive drunk? You know, how can he do this? This is so irresponsible. I can, you know, he breaks his word. He's never trustworthy. And I work myself up into a frenzy of anger. And I go down to that pub. And I leave two babies crying in the, in the, in the lobby. So I can go in there and create a scene. And I can drag him out so we can go home and have a fight in the carport so he can go down and drink again. That made perfectly sense to me. I mean, that made sense to me. And I thought there was nothing wrong with me. If this guy would just stop drinking, everything would be fine. And he would come home probably sometimes about any time after 3 o'clock on Sunday morning as a rule. And one thing I will tell you about my husband's drinking is that the last four years of his drinking, he was superintendent of Sunday schools. And wow, that was a hard one to cover up for. So many times I was the dutiful wife and you know, did the Sunday school lessons for him. You know, I'm mean, so wonderful. But I want to tell you that when my husband got in about 5 o'clock, he would just pass out. He'd be pass, you know, and I would be rehearsing these talks I'm going to give him all night long. And I'm angry. And, I'm, and I, have to, I have no vent for this anger because he passed out on me. And there's many times I can remember beating him passed out on the bed with my fists and elbows because I was so frustrated. You know, I'm a coward. I have never hit Clarence when he was awake. <laughs> I never have. <laughs> but I want you to know that I was so scared when I would wake up the next morning and realize what I had done. You talk about remorse and guilt. I got so scared that I watched when, about my, in the, when I was at home I was always looking over my shoulder to see if a window was open, if somebody was listening to me, because I was scared to death if he ever heard me, he'd, lock, he'd report me, and I'd, I'd have my children taken away or I'd get locked up. And, you know, my husband would uh, go to sleep, and, uh, and it's time for him to get up for Sunday school. 
7 o'clock in the morning, I give him his spiritual awakening, which was a cold glass of water across his face. (laughs) And I would swear at him. And we would dress these three children like dolls, and and he would look wonderful, and I would look look like something the cat dragged in because I'd paced the floor all night. And and I never looked after myself. I was so busy looking after everybody else. Everybody else had to look good. Didn't matter. We had skid row in our house, but boy, as long as we looked good. As long as that image was there when we walked out of that house, everything was good. And we'd go down to that little church, and I'd swear in front of these three little children, uh, one of them just virtually a baby, and I'd swear all the way down there, and, and I'd tell him what a no-good drunken bum he was, and in, in, in language I don't use anymore. But when we walked in the doors of that church, a smile came on my face. And we're the united family, you know. And I cuddle up into that pew next to my husband and these three children, and the act is on. And I sit in that little church, and I, and I look around at all the hypocrites. You know? I really do. And I think about these people that sit in this church on Sunday morning and I think, how dare they be here? I mean, I know what they do during the week. How dare they be here? You know, it wasn't until I got into Al-Anon that there was a a long-time AA member who's now 51 years sober. And I remember him telling, I remember me having the nerve to tell him about all the hypocrites that sat in church. And he said, isn't it amazing, Joyce? There's always room for one more. (laughs) He hurt my feelings. We would sit in that little church uh, until the service was over, and uh, it's amazing that this minister, John, used to stand at the door, and he al- it's amazing, we'd, we'd go by, and he'd always look at me and say, are you okay, Joyce? And I'd always be angry. I'd want to say, it's him that has the problem. <coughs> but isn't it true that if you want to see that there's alcoholism in the home, often it's more visible in the family members than it is the alcoholic? And I was one of those. I looked terrible. And uh, I would go out of that church service and we'd get in the car and I would swear again. And I would call him down and tell him what a no good... I mean, how dare he even be sitting in that church beside me? I mean, I dragged him there, but I didn't want him there. I mean, you couldn't make me happy. I was so very unhappy. And we'd go home and I'd serve hot tongue and cold shoulder for a week. For a week. And I'd cut him off specs half the time. And, you know, he cut me off. And I mean, our life was so crazy. The pattern was that, you know, we would go, I would do this abusive thing, and I was abusive, please hear this. When, you're, when you are being uh, neglected and abused yourself, you could become abusive. I was an abusive woman. I tried to rip all the goodness, any goodness my husband had, I tried to destroy that because I was hurting so badly. And, and I would serve hot tongue and cold shoulder, and he would sleep on the Chesterfield for the first week. And, and after that, I, towards the end of the week, I'm, I mean, I really loved it when he had to do penance. Do you, do you like that? Man, was I happy. When he was doing penance, I could get the material things. I got to go where I wanted. Like, I had control. And he would always do what I wanted. So by the end of the week after this drinking session, I'm, I'm, I'm warming up a little bit, and I'm thinking it would be nice to go someplace. And, um, I, and I say to my husband, well, let's do something together. And he says, are you kidding? You wouldn't go with me. Anytime I asked last week, you've done all this to me. He says, you stay home. And by the next weekend, we're ready for the, you know, we're, now he does the cutting off. They're not speaking in the silent treatment. That's what my husband did to me. He didn't talk to me. And, and then the, the drinking would come in again. And it was just, honestly, just like a, just like a hamster's wheel. And we were going on and on, going faster and faster. And what happened is, 
my husband went to um, see our family doctor. I was expecting our youngest son, and I went to the doctor, and I went there for pills. I am so grateful because I, I couldn't stand it anymore. My nerves were so bad. I had never, ever told anybody in the world that there was a drinking problem in our home. And I went to my doctor this day to ask for, for pills, and thank God I was pregnant, that she, she gave me something very mild that I thought didn't do me any good. But she couldn't do much for me, and I broke down and cried, and I told her about the alcoholism. So my husband was, um, went, was asked to go in and see her, her husband. They're in partnership in their medical practice. And he was sent to see a psychiatrist. And what happened as a result of that is that the last sessions, I was called in for a few se- sessions with my husband, and the psychiatrist stood there and said, uh, he said to my husband, you're a borderline alcoholic. To me, that's like saying maybe you're pregnant. <laughs> But anyway, that's what he said to my husband, and he turned to me and he said, and you better get off his back before you drive him crazy. And you know, I was defeated that day. You see, always in the back of my mind, even with my father's alcoholism, was always the thought, if behind all the excuses the alcoholic uses, and none of those really are the reason, then maybe it is me. My husband used to say this to me in, in, in the heights of his drinking, anybody drink who lived with you. And you know, when you hear that kind of talk, eventually you get, you know, it it sticks in your mind and you think, well, maybe if it's not anything else, maybe it is me. And I thought that I was to blame. And when this psychiatrist said that, I thought, I I, I virtually gave up. I came home. I no longer cared. I absolutely gave up on my husband. And I no longer cared if he came home anymore. Uh, Nobody even looked up when he came in the house. Um, It's like he didn't exist. And he said that's the thing that frightened him into coming, uh, looking for help. He said as long as they're phoning the beer parlor and yelling and screaming and doing all of these other things, he said, but you know, when you did nothing, he said, then I knew that our marriage was in trouble. And my, my husband made a phone call and went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now that was not in my plan. <laughs> and things in our house did not go well if it wasn't going according to my plan. But he, in spite of me, went out to talk to this fellow about Alcoholics Anonymous. And the next night, I was introduced to Al-Anon by his wife, his sponsors, to be sponsored of his wife. Anyway, Dorothy um, uh, talked to me about Al-Anon, and my answer in those days was, well, I go to church. What do I need that for? And I maintained that attitude for the next 18 months. If you ever suggested that I go to to Al-Anon, I would say that I go to church, I really don't need that. I had an awful lot of spiritual pride and I could have easily, easily missed this program. To me, it is by the grace of God that I made it to the al family groups. I used to go to the AA meetings. I would condescend myself enough to go to some AA meetings with my husband. And I would sit there and I would listen for him and I would poke him when I heard something he needed. <laughs> I read the AA literature for him. <laughs> I pointed out parts that he needed to see. I loved any time anybody talked about or portions in the big book that talked about making amends. <laughs> um, because I could hardly wait for him to do that. I could hardly wait. And I pointed out how important these things were to his program. Um, I even suggested, I hate to tell you this, but I even suggested who he should have for a sponsor. Now, how my husband stayed sober in those 18 months with me not in Al-Anon still amazes me that he managed to stay sober 
because I, I tell you, I was very unhappy. But I want to tell you that's the most important 18 months in my life because I hit a bottom. You see, I no longer had a whipping boy. And if you want to get somebody to blame in your life, please get yourself an alcoholic. Because whatever goes wrong in your life, it's because of the problem. And if you ever compare anything you do to the doo-doos that an alcoholic does, you always come up smelling like a rose. You really do. So I lost my whipping boy. There was no penance anymore. I couldn't get the material things. He was trying to be a husband and father again, and I wasn't having any part of it. I had so, many, so much anger and so many resentments. But my husband did what his program taught him to do. He, he learned about release with love before I even heard of it. And he went to his AA meetings. In fact, I started to resent Alcoholics Anonymous because you were at the doorstep seven nights a week. And I'm sure that he needed every one of those meetings to, to st stay sober living with me. And at the end of that 18 months, I was sicker than I've ever been in my life. And we attended a, a convention of Alcoholics Anonymous, my very first convention in Penticton. And um, I heard an Al-Anon speaker. And I was forever changed. I went to my, back to my uh, hometown and joined my home group the next Wednesday. And I have never, um, ever been um, without a meeting of Al-Anon in all the years I've been there. I've never been one that's been in and out. I have been absolutely there. I came to such a surrender by the time I came to Al-Anon that if you would have asked me to do anything, I would have stood on my head and spit nipples to get this program. So I'm very happy. I'm so grateful to the Al-Anon family groups. I came to my first meeting and I'm so I'm thankful for the members of Al-Anon who showed, shared with me their very worst because I needed to hear it. At my first Al-Anon meeting, there was a member there who'd broken a beer bottle over her husband's nose. Another one had tried to smother her husband when he was passed out in the motel room and I thought, yes, these are my kind of people. <laughs> You know, we are the only people in the world I know who sit and laugh about premeditated murder. <laughs> okay? And I want you to know that these women helped me so much because, you see, I had secrets. And I thought I was so much worse than you were. You see, in a fit of rage one night, I'd gone down to the basement looking for a 303 to shoot my husband and I couldn't find the shells. I was two years into Al-Anon when I found them, and I now remind him that I know where they are. <laughs> you have to keep them on their toes. <laughs> but I had those things that I thought I would never tell you, and I was so much ashamed. I was ashamed that I'd stolen money from my husband when he was drunk. I was ashamed of the abusive behavior towards these three little children that I didn't want anybody to know. And you cared enough to show your very worst at my first meetings and you gave me freedom because you let me know that I wasn't alone and I was absolutely hooked. Never had I found that language of the heart that touched my disease like I did in the Al-Anon family group and I've been hooked every day since. The members of the group um, loved me, told me to get phone numbers, told me to call. And that was important because alcohol, active alcoholism usually does not break out in the cute hours of 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. It breaks out from 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. in the morning. And I needed to be able to call somebody. And you know, something I hadn't counted on was I was two weeks in, in Al-Anon and my husband went out drinking again. 
And I thought that was such a tragedy. I thought that was such a tragedy. But you know that I needed that. Because my husband um, was, for the next year and a half after that, would get three months of sobriety. One month time he had nine months. One time he had 11 and a half months of sobriety. But he would go out again. And that was important for me because I came to a surrender because of, he went back drinking again that I would never have come to without it. And I remember saying in some of the meetings um, that I don't know if I even love him. I don't know that if I can even stay with him. And what they said to me was, we don't give advice whether you stay or not, Joyce, she said. That's not for us to say. That's your decision to make. But what they did tell me is if you do everything you can to get well using the three legacies of our program and you have to leave, you'll be able to leave in freedom. And they had me hooked because I'd never heard the word freedom before and I'd never experienced it. And I was willing to give that a try. And you know, I'm so grateful that I hung in there and I got so busy on my own recovery that, you know, in spite of me, that guy sobered up. And my husband will be celebrating, by the grace of God, an Alcoholics Anonymous 24 years of sobriety in August of this year. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm telling you, coming into the Al-Anon family groups was not an easy thing for me. I'm so grateful that my husband and I were blessed with really long-time people in the program to help us, to give us this program the way it was laid down. The couple that helped my husband and I the most in this program, um, Bert just celebrated 51 years of sobriety. And, I, and we were given this program, old-time um, Alcoholics Anonymous and Alan and his wife was in the program as well. <coughs> And, you know, they taught me what it was like to be a group member. They talked about, you know, you, have to, you need to join a group, Joyce. You need to get there early. You need to be, stay there late in order to talk to people. You need to get a sponsor. You need to take responsibility. You need to do the, the service work in the group, like making coffee and cleaning up. You need to give service to Al-Anon. You need to do all the things that will make you um, a healthy individual. And I'm so grateful for those messages. They also told us that, you know, um, and I'm not saying this is for everybody, I give you the program, I give my message the way it was given to me. And this couple um, told us that, you know, not to have business dealings with people in the fellowship. We lived in a very small town. Everybody knows too much about each other. And they said that if we didn't have business dealings with people in the program, there would never be a danger of somebody not coming to meetings because they, some business deal went wrong and they might have resentments towards us. And that's been a really good thing for us. I've never had an outing with anybody in this program because of financial dealings or, or anything to do with business outside of the program. And that was really a good thing for us. They also told us that we must never use this fellowship for personal gain. They said if you ever use people in this program for any personal gain, your own recovery will come back and strangle you. And I've worked very, very hard not to do that. You know, I, you are my you are my lifeline, and I'll never. I'll, my commitment is never to use you in any way. I'm here to give, not to take, and that was really important for me. Now, those early days in the program were really difficult. I don't know about the rest of you, but you know, the first 11 and 11 or 18 months of sobriety that when my husband sobered up in this program were unmitigated hell. Like it was worse than anything that that we had during the drinking because. 
He was stark staring sober, and I was new in Al-Anon. And I had all these expectations of him. He, you know, I was applying my program to him. He was applying his to me. He wanted me to change. I wanted him to change. I mean, I thought, my feeling was like, I suffered. Have I not suffered enough? I've waited all these years, and I thought immediately when he came into the program, he'd become the man of my dreams. And he would do all of these things that he had never done before. And all he, all he could do was be sober. And what went on in our house was all these expectations. It was like the episode of, of um, All in the Family where Archie gave Edith 30 seconds to go through the change of life. Did you see that one? <laughs> and there was, lots, oh, there was lots of expectations. I'm telling you, we just, everybody wanted everybody else to change. But you know what I had to start bringing into my family life? And I'm glad that this couple, this long-time couple, told us if we didn't have the program at home, we did not have the program. They told us next to personal recovery, family recovery was the most important thing. And they told, and my, my first sponsor told me if I didn't have my house in order, I wasn't supposed to leave it, and she didn't mean clean. And I'm telling you, I wouldn't be here this weekend if my house wasn't in order. And I'm so thankful the program was given us that way. You know, my, my uh, sponsor buried me in the book, The Dilemma of the Alcoholic Marriage, when I, first came in, uh, when I first got her for a sponsor. And she told me to practice everything in there, you know, next to taking the steps that that book was really important. You see, I read things in that book that I had heard of, but I, I, didn't, I honestly did not realize I wasn't doing they talk about courtesy in that book. Well, I'm telling you, when active alcoholism came in our lives, courtesy went out. The please and the thank yous, you know. Um, guidelines for communication in that book. You know, discuss, don't attack. I'd never heard of that. <laughs> Keep the voice low. Man, that, that was impossible. Stick to the subject. I told my husband three times that I just assumed he didn't hear. And, and I, that was one of the major stumbling blocks in our house. Everybody hated that about me that I kept telling you and telling you and telling you. And I had to learn to, to re, maybe relearn or learn for the first time in my life all of these things that I learned about communicating with people. And I had to take this program into my home. But I had to learn um, to do that. You know, I was, when I came to Al-Anon, sponsorship was really stressed. This long-time couple um, in the program suggested that sponsorship was the most important, one of the most important aspects in the program, and our sponsorship pamphlet said that twice in it. And they told me that sponsorship was one of the most important decisions that I would ever make in my Al-Anon program, because they said that although a, sp a good sponsor does not give advice, that person is, um, to some extent, um, having some, a measure of control over your life. They really are. They are, you know, they really are going to give you some guidelines for living. So they suggested that I very prayerfully pray for a sponsor before I got one, and I did that. I prayed for eight months that I ran into a lady that I was absolutely scared to death of. I saw her confront a couple of Al-Anon members at a meeting, and you know she had everything. She's everything I wanted because I didn't have the courage to do that. This woman. Um, I did not know for many years down the road. The reason I was attracted to her is because she had the 12 steps and the 12 traditions and the 12 concepts of service carved on her life. She did not know them. She lived them. 
And that was so attractive to me, the way that she lived. And so I phoned her up and uh, we had a meeting and I asked her if she'd be my sponsor. And that was such a hard thing for me to do. I'd never ask anybody ever in my life um, for help. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family where the motto was, I can do it. We didn't, ask, we didn't want to be beholding to anybody. We didn't ask anybody for help. And I know the day that I got a sponsor today that I took the first word and the first step, which means we. And it's very important that I never become an I again, that, I, that I'm a we. And you know, this lady was the first person in my life who ever cared about how I felt. She said, Joyce, you and I have to sit down and we have to have a verbal agreement about this thing called sponsorship. She said, I want, I'm going to tell you what my boundaries are or my principles are. We didn't call them boundaries in those days. We called them principles. And, and she said, I want you to tell me what yours are. Now, nobody had ever asked me how I felt. So we had this mutual agreement that um, our sponsorship relationship was going to work if we both attended meetings. If, we, if either one of us stopped going to meetings, then the sponsorship relationship was going to, going to end. Because I can't have somebody sponsor me who's not going to Al-Anon meetings. And she said the same with her. Um, we talked about confidentiality. We talked about, uh, she talked to me about taking the steps. She said, you know, Joyce, taking the 12 steps in this program is an act of love, and I hope you'll love yourself enough to do that. She said, I'll do everything I, have, I can to help you, but you, you ha- that's an act that you have to do. It's an act of love for yourself. The only thing she told me that I had to do that was not optional, there was no arguing over, was I had to do service work for Al-Anon. She said, don't ever convince any, let anybody tell you that you don't owe. She said, because the more God gives to you, the more you need to, the more you're going to owe and the more you've got to put back. So she taught me that I had to be of service to the, to the Al-Anon and that I should accept within reason requests that were made of me. Now, I don't believe in my program today that I can't say no to an Al-Anon request. Every time the phone rings, it is not God calling. <laughs> And in my recovery today, for instance, I speak only four to six times outside of British Columbia in a year because I have a a marriage that I cherish. I have three children now that are married and I have grandchildren. And I cannot be on the road all the time. I have a life. I have time for myself to nurture myself. I can't be gone all the time if I'm doing that. So it's perfectly fine for me if I pray about it to say no. So... These are some of the things that we talked about in our relationship. She told me that I had to take the 12 traditions into my, into my home and start working them. And she helped me to do that. You know, I'm such a crybaby. Um, I, I, I really, Beverly was talking about whenever you had a crisis at home, uh, it was a fight to see who was going to get to the phone first for the sponsor. Uh, and I would usually, I went down to see Joanne because my sponsor lived in Abbotsford. She was about 60 miles away. And one of the things she used to tell me was, she said, you know, Joyce, if you're going to come down and see me, she said, if you're going to lie, stay at home. Don't waste the gas. She said, if you're coming down here, stay, tell the truth because she said, it's not going to hurt me one bit if you lie. It's not going to affect my program in the least if you lie. So she said, the one thing I'm asking you is if you come down to see me, be honest. And, you know, I'd go down and we'd have some little crisis and I'm rehearsing all the way down what I'm going to tell Joanne. I mean, this is what I always did. I always wanted to look pretty. You know, I always had to look better than the other guy. You know, um, or at least equal to. And I'd be rehearsing 
what I was going to tell her. And by the time I got to the garage out, just outside of Abbotsford, I had diarrhea every time. You know that? And I know what that was, was that, you know, the games I was playing, the internal turmoil of trying to cover up and not being honest. And, you know, by the time I got to her house, I thought, what the heck, let's go for it. But, you know, I tell her these things. My hu- I walk into her house and I tell her these things that Clarence had done. And, you know, she was so patient to listen to a lot of the garbage. And she would always ask me questions like, um, what's going on in your house, George, Joyce, that he should want to stay sober? Well, I don't want to hear that. I want to tell you how he's treating me, not how I'm treating him. You know, she taught me little things about in a relationship with another person. And this is where the traditions of unity came in. But she said, you know, when the phone rings, Joyce, and you get asked to go out for dinner, she said, do you ask your husband if he wants to go? Well, that never occurred to me. I mean, I thought he'd be grateful to go with me. I arranged all the social occasions. I didn't want to go where he wanted to go anyway. And, you know, I learned that I, today I can't accept an invitation to go somewhere without saying, I'll call you back. I'll have to ask my husband how he feels. I didn't care how he felt when I came here. But you know, I learned to have respect by that man, from that man, because she told me, if you want to be respected, Joyce, you better start giving some of that out. Because whatever you put into the life of another person comes back into your own. And I know that I wanted to be treated differently. And I'd go down there and I'd cry. I I was always whining. How come it's always me that's got to be instigating the change in our home? And she said, simply because you're the one that sees the need. And I was always angry. How come he can't instigate some this changes? And you know, really to me today, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter to me as long as the changes happen. And I learned to talk some, to, uh, honestly to my husband. We learned to open some honest do- doors in our life that we thought we would never open again and, and to do some healing work. Um, my sponsor said that, um, and Clarence's sponsor said that, you know, if we were going to communicate with each other, one of the things we had to do was we had to learn to sit down sometime when we were both on a relatively uneven keel, and we had to start telling each other some of the things that were bothering us, you know. Now, I'm telling you how picky we were at that time. The first thing I ever told my husband, because I didn't know about the deeper things at this time, <coughs> was that he used to throw his sock he'd kick his socks off when we was watching TV and every day I had to pick up these grungy socks. And I was telling him that bothered me. And you know what his big beef was me the first beef he ever had with me was my junk drawer. Now his mother had a junk drawer. Uh, she grew up in the thirties and she had she has every piece of string probably from there to still today. Everything had a place. I thought the junk drawer was for junk. So when I wandered around the house and somebody left something laying around I put it in the junk drawer, so when you wanted to know where it was or you couldn't find it, I knew it was in the junk drawer. And that bothered him. And what they told us, when you, when you say those things that bother you, you're not to discuss it, you're to leave it with the other person. If you want to come back again, if you start reacting, you're supposed to um, say, uh, I, th- I think we have to leave this now because I'm feeling emotional and I don't want to say something I might be sorry for. And then we would come back. And eventually, you know, we got into some really deep things in our relationship. Eventually, a lot of, every door had to be opened. And eventually, we got around to talking about major things that were wrong in our life. One of the biggest problems in, in our life, and from my, what I read in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
The sex was one of the biggest problems we had, and we started to have to bring that out of the closet. My sponsor told me that my inventories on a yearly basis do not deal with my sexual conduct. I've never taken a four-step inventory. I've never completed one. And that's part of my inventory. My sponsor um, told me that. And we had to start bringing some of these things out of the dark closets that we needed to talk about. And we started... Uh, one of the best gifts my husband ever gave me after a year, few years in the program was on one anniversary, he bought me a, a three-volume book on sex. And we decided that we were going to start bringing this out of the closet. This is a... You know, sexuality is such a spiritual, deeply spiritual thing. I never learned this before the program. But... You know, we, we decided that we were going to start learning about this thing that we were doing and knew nothing about. And we used to cuddle up in bed uh, almost every night and we would read these books together. And we made an agreement that we, could, we would talk about what we were reading. We would, most of the time, never read more than a page every night. And we made an agreement that, that we, could, we had the right to say no. We had the right to say maybe and sometimes never. And maybe not for now but we learned to honestly discuss the sexual issues in our life and to coming to talk about some of these issues with each other. The second biggest problem we had was money. Some of these things, the financial things, out of the woodwork. I don't know about the rest of you, but I was, I was such a thief. I mean, I was afraid to ask my, money, my husband for money because every time I did, it seemed he drank. And so I wouldn't ask for it, but man, I'd be, you know taking money out of the grocery money and I'd be wielding, always wielding and dealing with the money issues. And you know, that wasn't honest. I was stealing from our family and I wasn't being honest. And I had to come clean about a lot of these issues in our relationships and I managed to do that through taking the 12 steps. One of the most important things my sponsor told me is that, um, at, not my sponsor, but this minister who had stood at the church door, John was his name, I did my first fifth step with him. And I'll never forget when I walked out of that church, I felt whitewashed on the inside, the way I do every year when I do these steps. And he said to me, Joyce, he said, if you're willing to go through the 12 steps every year or two in your program, he said, you can live in freedom. And I was hooked because he told me he did the same thing and he shared some of his fifth step with me. And I have been very vigorous. I've been rigorous about taking the 12 steps every year. I just finished going through the steps again. And I find that's a necessity for me it's the way I work my program. Because, you know, God could not let me see, even today, um, I can't handle everything that I've got to change in my life. I'm under construction. This is, this, is, um, this is a journey, not a destination. And I'm on a journey to wellness, and I'm not capable even today of, of seeing everything about myself. But every year when I do my inventory, my higher power lets me see five, six major character defects that are causing me real problems. And I get to take these things, I get to admit them in a fifth step. I get to take them to God in step six and ask for the willingness to have them removed. And in step seven, I get to ask him to do that. I get to recognize that no matter how much I try, I have no power to change myself. Any changes I've made in my life are absolutely by the grace of God, nothing to do with me, except I supply some willingness. And that's really important for me to remember. <coughs> And I don't know about your higher power, but the way mine removes my defects of character in most of the time is putting me into the same situation again and again and giving me the opportunity to act differently. <laughs> and if I don't get the message the first time around, the tube by four comes out. 
Usually the third time it comes out with two nails in it and it hurts so much. But you taught me that pain is optional. I have choices. And I know that if I'm, if I'm faithful and if I'm rigorous with my steps in this program, that I know that I will grow as, as a, to be the woman that God intended me to be. You taught us to bring the program into our, into our home and work it with our children. You know, I've actually learned through um, Al-Anon, and when I realized for the first time that I was different, was the day that our oldest daughter, Wendy, walked in the door, and she was about six or seven years old at this time. And she was a very emotional girl, and just like a tornado when she was upset. And she came in this door, and my reaction on the inside, because I was like a military sergeant, what I was feeling when she walked in with this tirade, I was feeling, you know, just walk out the door, Mrs. You're not coming in here acting like that. Go outside and come back in when you can behave the way you're supposed to. That's how I was feeling. You know what came out of my mouth? Wendy, did you have a bad day? And I knew something had changed. Because you taught, you know, Al-Anon gave me, with some healing, the ability to feel one way and act another. And that's only when my emotions started to heal and that through the 12 steps of the program. And I knew that I was different. You taught me to respect these children. I learned as they grew up that they could have, they each had their own bedroom. And that, you know, I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I was crazy in the, in the teenage years about the bedrooms. It used to drive me crazy. My sponsor said to me, Joyce, did it ever occur, occur to you that you could just close the door? <laughs> that their bedroom is a place that they really need to have privacy. That's their domain. That's their, that's their hideaway from the world. And, you know, I learned to use a sense of humor. I'd keep the, do the doors were closed if it bothered me. And every once in a while I would look at them and say, well, is there anything growing in there? <laughs> and that was always, or, you know, uh, that was always a sign that maybe the sheets needed to be changed and we learned to laugh. And one of the biggest things I learned in the program is that you taught me that when my children wanted to share something with me, that it wasn't necessarily this wonderful wisdom that I have in Al-Anon that they wanted. I learned to say, are you just sharing something with me or would you like to know how I feel? There's lots of times today they say, no, I really don't want how you feel. I just want to tell you. You're in my mouth. And isn't it wonderful that I can ask? I, know, I don't know, no longer assume that when they're having a problem that I've descended from God to fix it. There's a whole other lot of people in their lives that are contributing to their lives today, and I can let that happen. You taught me when these kids were growing up, release with love. At the first convention, one of uh, I think that was the second one I ever went to in 1974, I heard an Al-Anon member named Blanche, and some of you have heard Blanche. And she taught me about release with love. She said the way that she did it is in her 11-step time in the morning, that's prayer and meditation time, that she learned to picture the ones that she loved being held in the hollow of God's hands. God who loved them more than she could. She said it was a reminder to her that she didn't own them. And I don't own anybody today, that they were a gift from God. She had to learn to love with an open hand because God might choose to have a different path or, or want some other way for these children. You have to be able to release them with love. And I believe today that, that I have done that faithfully every single day since 1974. And I have learned to believe that a lot of times it protects them from me. Because uh, the old thing, she used to say this too, that anything I've ever released has claw marks and scratch marks all over it. 
and you taught me to mind my own business that my children, you know, I can pray for them. That's the greatest gift that I can give them today is to pray for them. <coughs> you taught me to mind my own business and to, uh, and, and to just be a, a mother, not a, not a smotherer to them. Um, I was so grateful that I learned that lesson about release with love. Because when our oldest daughter got in her teenage years, she started to get really, really angry with me. I don't know what that's all about today, and it really doesn't matter. But I learned how to, how to detach from that. And we had a lot of um, a lot of upsets in our home over it. And by the time she went away to university, um, she had she was very, very, really angry with me. And it was a good thing she was away because it was getting to the point where it was getting very abusive. And she went away for three years, and, and it, I don't know what happened in that time, but when she came back, um, she was very, very loving, and we had a great relationship for about ten years. And um, I'm telling you that you taught me in that time that I am not responsible for you keeping me in your circle of love. I'm responsible for keeping you in mine. And I would write... Uh, cards to this girl I would tell her I love her I'd share about some of the things from her childhood uh, I did what I could and you know it's amazing when she came back into my life at that time I remember going into her apartment for, in Burnaby and for a number of years she had all the cards that I had sent her when she was away in university hanging on her fridge you see you taught me how to feel one way and act another I'm, you, you can't make me do anything today I'm not a victim you can't victimize me today. I'm not a victim. I'm, I'm a volunteer if I play into that stuff. Uh, things went along really good um, with a for a long time with Wendy. I also knew that nothing had been dealt with. Six years ago on Mother's Day, I got a card from my daughter, and I she had joined a 12-step program a, about two years before. We could see her very angry and growing away from our family, and she wrote me a letter on this Mother's Day saying that she was leaving our family that she was very angry with her dad and I, she didn't want to discuss it, but that she wasn't going to be part of it. And I can't tell you as a mother that was the most devastating <coughs> day of my life. But you see what you've taught me out of the seemingly worst things that you could ever imagine happening to you in life, and I wouldn't wish that on, on any mother in the world, that out of that comes the greatest, greatest miracles. And it was very hard on our, our whole family. Um, it, it sort of disintegrated the family unit for a while while we regrouped to come back. And she was estranged a lot from her brother and her sister as well. And, you know, we had to regroup. And, you know, the miracle of it is, at that time in my program, you taught, I learned how to grieve properly. I was so vulnerable that in my program, and I'd probably be in the program at that time around 15 years, and I had to, I had to share with people that I was absolutely safe with. I was so vulnerable I would go into an Al-Anon meeting and I would have to sit next to somebody who I was safe with. Um, I, it was just, I tell you, but I healed through my grieving that girl more than anything I could have ever done without that experience. Uh, you taught me how to let her go. I went to a counselor because this was a different situation, a different 12-step program. I went to get some outside help because I, I didn't know how this program was being, being handled. And I was told for the first time in my life that I had to do nothing, that I had to let this girl go, that she had not even asked for a reply to the letter, and, I, and I, that I had to let her go absolutely for the first time in my life, and I did that. I want you to know, in those, over those years, there was some time that I was so ill 
that I would have gone back into that relationship and accepted it on any level. But I'm so grateful that I didn't. That's the time I would pick up the phone and make a telephone call, and I would go to an Al-Anon meeting, and I would sit and I would cry, and I would share my feelings. But you taught me to give my daughter the freedom. You taught me also that it took me back to my early years in Al-Anon. I can't imagine what it would have been like when I came in and I was doing my healing with my family, if my family had lived out in British Columbia. I was fortunate they lived in Saskatchewan and I didn't have to see them too often. And you taught me to go back and recognize what it was like in my early days, that people had to let me be the way I I needed to be and I was able to do that. And Mm -hmm. so we had to give her those spaces. And you know, as the years have gone by, um, the miracle that's happened with our daughter is that our other two children, um, Tammy, our second daughter, and our son Jeff, have got married and now there's three little grandchildren on the scene. And our daughter adores children. And she started coming back into our family on special occasions. And she started showing up for the birthday parties. And then the last couple of years, the anger is going. And uh, she, you know, it's a miracle. You want to talk about God. At Christmas time this year, um, it was our turn to have Christmas at our house and Wendy decided she was coming. And God created a snowstorm that she had to stay overnight in our house for the first time in six years. And, and, it, was, and it wasn't comfortable for her, but it, we made it very easy for her. And it was just a miracle. It was so wonderful. I, I, those of you that are mo- mothers here will know how much that meant to me to have our whole family under the same roof again for the first time in those years. So I'm very grateful. So I watched this healing take part, eh? And our daughter, um, uh, last weekend, turned 33. And I've seen some good signs. I don't want to push this thing and I don't want to um, do any shoving. But I had the distinct feeling this year. You see, you taught me about the traditions. You taught me that, that um, each family is an individual unit. Now, in our family right now, Jeff's family, because uh, him and his wife, Yvonne, have a little girl. So their families honor the lot because they have these little kids. We have all these special celebrations and tea parties and, and, and Tammy and Paul's family are honored because they have, they have Laura and they have Nick. And you know, what is the family, even if she's one? And because she, she, she doesn't seem to get that honored. And I thought, you know, this year I'm going to ask her um, if she would like, uh, that I'd like to have a birthday party for. I'm just going to ask her that and see what she said. And you know, she said yes. The only thing she asked is that we, f- we ha- have it at our daughter's at Abbotsford, so it was more than about halfway for everybody to travel. So we put on this kid's birthday party. I put on this little, this kid's birthday party, and we did this great big, I did this great big poster for the door. Um, Wendy's birthday party, we love you. And we had balloons, and, and you know, the miracle of seeing his daughter sitting there with these three grandchildren under the age of three on her knee, uh, that was the most, I know that was the best thing for her. The greatest gift I ever could have given her was this kid's party with her nieces and nephews. And you know, I have to tell you today that I don't have things the way I want them, but the family unity we have when we're together is the healthiest thing we've ever had. And we could have never had that unity without going through the pain. So my message for you today is never stop praying and never stop hoping and never, never give up because, you know, everything good is going to come from everything if you can just put in the time.
And if you can just keep going to those meetings and you can just hang in there. You know, God never gives you more than you can handle. And I, and I, I, as I say, our family unit is much healthier than it's ever been. I'm grateful because of sobriety in this program that we've been able to be there for our children. We've been there, we were able to be there for the growing up years and the, and the, and the, and the hockey games. Our, our daughters went through the stage in the teenage years where they wanted, to, uh, they were upset with minor hockey because uh, they wouldn't let them play. You know, the women's livers stage. So their dad told them they were going to sue minor hockey. You know, this was really reasonable to them. And their father said, well, I'll help you. So we went to minor hockey, and, and my husband coached us, uh, the first girls team in Hope for minor hockey girls, girls league. And, you know, without sobriety, that would never have been possible. You know, he's been there to suit up and show up for every occasion with those kids. He's been able to be there. We've both been able to be there for the birthdays, for the graduations from school, for the university, to support them in their life choices. And you know what a privilege it is today to have had the opportunity to raise these children in sobriety. The greatest gift in my life to me today is the trust that my children have with me with their kids. My son-in-law tells me that, you know, that him and his wife trust, trust my husband and I the most with these children. Uh, I'm the one that gets to stay with them when the new babies are born. And you know, I'm so grateful for that. Without that, the Al-Anon program, I may have missed this all. My greatest fear was, um, just before coming to the program, was, was the fear that I was going to lose my children, that I would end up in a psych ward. And you see, you brought me full circle. You brought me full circle and you've given me this wonderful, wonderful life. And that doesn't mean that everything's perfect. My husband and I, have ex we've experienced um, money problems. We've experienced death. You know, uh, Beverly was talking about the healing with, her, with her, her dad. And I had that opportunity. My sponsor told me not to wait to make amends. She said, you know, Joyce, you think, you, can, you think you've got forever, but you know, you really don't. She said, if you don't make those amends, sometimes you never will get the opportunity. She said, do it promptly. It says promptly. And I'm so glad I did that because I had the chance to have a great relationship with my parents. And I'll never forget when my mother died. She's been dead now about nine years. And I got a call to go back to South Between. My mother had had a heart attack, and I spent my, one of the, the most wonderful five days with my mom. After my dad died, she spent a lot of time out, of our place, out at our place, and we just spoiled her rotten. But I spent these five days in intensive care with my mother. And, you know, we were able to talk about life and about death and you know, it was the most wonderful experience of my life. My mother was so ready to go. And the last words I heard my mother say to me were, I love you, Joyce. I love Clarence, I love Wendy, I love Tammy, and I love Jeffrey. And those are the last words I heard my mother hear. You know, I thought I would never, ever, I'd never heard my mother tell me she loved me for many, many years until I came to this program. And you know, the nice part of it is that I was complete with my mother. I have nothing left to say. If my mother was standing before me today, I miss her. I'd like to put my arms around her and tell her I love her, but there's nothing unfinished. And that's the freedom that the program gives me through the steps, is that I have completion in my relationships. Completion has become one of the most important things for me. I want to be complete on a daily basis.
my sponsor told me don't you know try to make your days complete we think because you may never have the opportunity if you died today would you be complete and if you can't be complete you better go do something about it so that became really important for me to have that completion one of the things I learned that I want to share with you because this has been really instrumental in my recovery in the last few years is when I was going through the separation with Wendy I came across an article that talked about forgiveness and I believe that our program is so much about forgiveness because it's one of the greatest aspects of love is being able to forgive somebody else and I read this article that said if you want to know what completion is like in your life what you have to do is make a list of everybody that you've ever had a resentment against and it talked in this um, this article about God talking to a man and he and the man's asking how many times do I have to forgive seven times and God said no 70 times seven it explained that 70 times seven is 490 is a number of completion and it said maybe this, that's how many times we have to pray in order for God to know that we're real serious about being rid of some of these resentments we've got so you have to take each individual person and for 70 times each day for exactly seven days you have to pray I Joyce completely forgive my mother and it said that at the end of that seven days you will know what completion is like and I want you to know that I do that when I do my fourth step every year since then everybody that's on my my fear list my um, resentment list and my sexual conduct list go on there and I do that process I want to tell you another thing that my sponsor was a big book person she told me I had to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous once a year and I take my steps exactly line by line word for word from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that's just the way I was brought in the program and I love it it's given me absolute freedom and I'm grateful for that direction another experience I had in the program is that my sponsor left the program after 13 years after sponsoring me for 13 years and that was really a hard experience to go through um, when you get that kind of intimacy with another individual man it's hard to let go and I'll tell you today that I did I did everything right and everything wrong when I saw her leaving I made her feel guilty I made her mad I tried to do everything and finally I had to say to her Joanna you're going back to meetings because if you're not our agreement is that our sponsor relationship is over and she said you have to get another sponsor Joyce because I'm not going back to meetings and I immediately went home and asked somebody in my home group to be my intern sponsor while I prayed again and I've had a, um, a sponsor for the last 13 years and, 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 and she's, she's another big book person she's another person um, that does a lot of service work to Al-Anon goes to meetings does all the things that I believe in uh, so sponsorship is really like it is so essential to me I have to be clean in my sponsorship relationship at every moment because I cannot do this thing alone and I have no right in my way of thinking to help to be sponsoring anybody else unless I have a sponsor myself I tell that to the people that I sponsor that if the day comes when I don't have a sponsor out that I'll have to release them because if I'm not getting help for myself I'm spreading disease not recovery and that's important for me to remember so my life today is is really good it's not without its difficulties my husband and I went through a, a couple of situations in our marriage in the last couple of years that have been I really not never thought we'd really have to handle but we do 
And you know the nice part of it is that we're both going through menopause together today. Today, together. Isn't that great? And I always used to think that was a real tragedy, but they say, thank God you're not going through menopause and puberty at the same time. They say that's hell. But you know, we have a home today that's a home. And you know, my house is a haven to me today. There was a day when I didn't want to go home. I would have done anything. I remember going to service meetings on a bus and crying home all the way home on Sunday night because I didn't want to go home. You know, when I think about my home today, I want to go home because I love my husband. I know that I'm loved there. I know when I go home that I'm going to be greeted with a hug and a kiss and he's going to sit there and let me babble about this weekend to all of you and how much you meant to me. I know that it's a safe place, that there's love, that there's love in that home. And it's a, it's a home today. It's not just a house. I'm in that same little church that I, I was in uh, when I came to Al-Anon the first time. And I want you to know that most times I'm there with a different attitude. Um, but I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that you gave me um, a life of service in Al-Anon. A lot of people that I meet in Al-Anon are some of the, because of some of the service work that I've been able to do. And that's a very important that I carry the message. I want to close now, and the story I want to close with is one that's very, very dear to my heart. And a story about a man talking to God, and he said to God, what's the difference between heaven and hell? And God said, I'll show you, and he took him into this room, and there was these great big long banquet tables laden with the most wonderful food in all the world. And these people were dying of starvation in the midst of plenty because they had these three-foot long-handled spoons and they could not get the spoons up to feed themselves and God took this man into uh, another room and showed him uh, the same banquet table laden with the most wonderful food again these people were happy, joyous and free you see they learned that if they reached across the table and fed each other they could get well and stay well I love you, God bless you (laughs) 